0: Perhaps you know this, and maybe you don't, but throughout the last many, many, many years, religious people have made all kinds of predictions about when Jesus Christ is going to return. Let me give you some examples. Maybe you've heard of the Anabaptists. They began in the 1500s. Well, um, they predicted that the second coming of Jesus would take place in 1533, They even believed that two of the people alive there, two of their leaders were actually Enoch and Elijah, who would come back and bring in a new millennium after Jesus returns. In fact, what they did is they brought in a frightening dictatorship, and all Lutherans and all Catholics were expelled from the city, and the millennium never came. William Miller, he was a Baptist. He predicted that the second coming of Jesus Christ would take place on March 21st, 1844. When that date passed, he changed to April 18th, 1844. Didn't work. Charles Taze Russell, he's the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He calculated that 1874 was the year when Jesus Christ would return. And he proclaimed that the resurrection of the saints would take place in 1875 and that the end of the harvest and the rapture of the saints to heaven would take place in 1878. And the final day of wrath of God would be 1914. You missed. A Russian Mennonite minister by the name of Klaus Epp predicted that Christ would return March 8th, 1889. And when that date passed, he changed to 1891. Didn't happen. During World War I, the weekly Evangel, it's a publication of the Assemblies of God Church, made this prediction, quote, we are not yet in the Armageddon struggle proper, but at its commencement. And it may be. If students of prophecy read the signs aright that Christ will come before the present word closes. The war preliminary to Armageddon, it seems, Has commenced. So they believed that in 1914, the second coming of Christ would take place, but then they changed that it would happen no later than 1934, and they changed again no later than 1935. And J.F. Rutherford, he's the one who succeeded um, uh, Charles Taze Russell as the head of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he predicted that the millennium would begin in 1925. So I guess the last hundred years have been really like a millennium on earth, haven't they? What a bunch of baloney. The Catholic Apostolic Church, founded in 1831, claimed that Jesus would return by the time the last of its 12 founding members died. The last one died in 1901. Herbert H. Armstrong, the self-proclaimed apostle of the Radio Church of God and the Worldwide Church of God, suggested that the return of Christ might be in 1935. And then in 1943 and then in 1972, and then in 1975, and then he said it would happen before he died, but he died in 1986. Harold Camping, general manager of the family radio and Bible teacher, published a book, 1994, a prediction that pointed to Christ's return in 1994. Now, that's just a small sampling, and most of these people that I um, read to you are people that would call themselves Christians as we do And they made predictions about the dates of the coming of Jesus, and they were all obviously wrong. But you know what's stunning? These people were so terribly wrong, and yet people still follow them. People are still following these people who made predictions that were clearly false. But people still follow them. You see, one of the things that prophets never do if they want to be smart is you don't give dates. Because if you give dates and your dates are proven wrong, you're a false prophet. And many of these are simply false prophets. What they said is garbage, and they were wrong. And They showed themselves as people who obviously were not connected with God in the sense of what they were saying, because God cannot lie. He cannot be wrong. If he is, he's not God. One of the most precarious things that any person can do who believes that you know the future is to give dates. today. We're going to look at the most important passage in the whole Bible that gives dates. And guess what? It came true. Our text today is one of the most important passages in the Bible. And it's considered one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. People say this passage in Daniel chapter 9 is the most difficult passage in the entire Old Testament. So as I try to unpack it here today, take what I say with a grain of salt, because... I'm not sure I know what's right, but I've done the best I can to try to interpret this passage because it's really important, but a little difficult. But I think today we can make sense of it. And so that's what we're hoping to do. It's called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. It is the most important passage in the entire Bible on what the future holds. When Jesus speaks about the end times, which he does in Matthew chapter 24, he refers back to this passage. And when John outlines the future in the book of Revelation, he refers back to this passage. This is the bedrock. This is the foundation on which Jesus built and the book of Revelation is built. So when it comes to the future, and of course, we believe God knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the future. If, in fact, our God who knows all things could give us a passage of the Bible that tells us the future, this is it. It's the most important one in the whole Bible. So that should cause your ears to perk up. So if you have a Bible, would you please um, turn to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 27. Now, remember last week? Last week in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prayed. It's one of the most important, the best, and the longest prayers in the whole Bible. Daniel, remember, he's reading the scrolls. He reads the scroll of Jeremiah the prophet, because Daniel believes, as we do, that Jeremiah the prophet spoke from God. And as he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah, they didn't have books back then, he reads that God said that the exile would last for 70 years. And he goes and pulls out his calendar and says, It's almost 70 years. And so he prays, oh, God, the condition of our people has not changed. We still are not following you at all. You'd have every right in the world to abandon us forever. But you promised. You promised you'd bring us back. And in fact, Daniel got to live to see some of God's people return to the land of Israel, though Daniel never went back. Why not? Well, because he's an old man. He's in his mid-80s. And the trip back takes about four months. He probably couldn't have made the trip physically, so he doesn't go back. He dies in Babylon. But God is so pleased by the prayer of Daniel that God says, Daniel, you've asked me in your prayer to be faithful to my promise to bring the people back to the land of Israel, which I prophesied would happen. But Daniel... I am so thrilled about who you are that I'm going to give you a million times more information. I'm going to give you insight that I've never given to any other human being on the face of the earth. I'm going to tell you what the future holds. And so that's where we begin. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Here's what it says While I was speaking and praying, remember that's what we talked about last week, confessing my sin. And the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for His holy hill. What's God's holy hill? There's no question. that's Jerusalem. While I will still prayer in prayer, Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel, who appears four times in the Bible, twice in Daniel and twice in the story of Jesus' birth. He's one of the most important angels, one of only two that are mentioned in the Bible. Apart from Lucifer, the fallen angel, of course. Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. That's about twilight. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. Now, remember, as soon as you began to pray, Daniel's prayer wasn't even uttered, and God is already answering it. Why? Well, God knew what he was going to pray. And, and this is a, a passage which is amazing because God is actually eager to answer our prayers. And he says, you, you, weren't, you just had started your prayer. And already I dispatched Gabriel. He's coming to tell you the answer to the prayer. Why? As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed which means greatly beloved, very precious, treasured. God says, I treasure you. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here's a man, one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived, and God loves this man dearly. God says that this guy is extremely special. He's very precious to God. And here's a man who trusts God implicitly. How much did he trust God? Remember what happened in the lion's den? Here he took a courageous stand against all these people who are trying to do him, to stab a knife in his back. He stands for God. They throw him in in a lion's den and God protects him. Here's a man who trusts God. And what does God do with those who trust him? He entrusts them with insight. So here's a man who trusts God implicitly. God says, I'm going to reward you, Daniel, with insight. I'm going to entrust you with insight into the future. And by the way, next week, we're going to see, Lord willing, um, some of the future that, that God is going to entrust into Daniel. And you know what happens to him? He can't get out of bed because God's going to show him some things about the future that are not very good. And Daniel can't get out of bed because he knows that God is trustworthy. And what he sees is so bad, it's going to be so painful. He can't even get out of bed. He's so troubled by it. Daniel's very human. But God cannot trust hardly any of, maybe none of us here. Maybe because we don't trust him. Because if we trust him, he will entrust to us insight. Maybe insight into his word. Maybe insight into our own hearts. Insight into people. But here's a man who trusts God, and God entrusts insight to him. By the way, here's a verse that we should take and grasp onto. Jesus says these words. If you who are evil, that's all of us, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, there's no father, no mother that I've ever heard of who doesn't like to give good gifts to their children. God says, you are not all, you're, you're not much to write home about. To be honest, every one of you messes up. But guess what? You still, even though you're, none of you are perfect, you like to give good gifts to your children, don't you? We go, yes. And then here's Jesus' words. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He says, you're you're a bunch of mess-ups. And you love to give good gifts to your children. God's perfect. What do you think he's like? Think, oh, he's stingy? No, he's not stingy. He loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. It's a privilege. That's what God did with Daniel gave him a spirit of understanding. So what is he going to tell him? The next thing he's going to tell him is God's going to give Daniel a glimpse of what God's ultimate game plan is. What is God up to? What is he trying to accomplish? What are God's goals? What are God's aims? And in the next few verses, God's going to say to Daniel, Daniel, this is my goal this is my game plan. This is what I'm trying to accomplish. And there are six things that I'm going to accomplish. Here they are. But he begins with this funny phrase, seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy-sevens. Now, obviously, the question to me is, what in the world are seventy-sevens? Well, it's actually rather easy for jewish people very difficult for us because the jewish people did not think in terms of decades they thought in terms of heptads you know we do things we do things based on the number 10 they did things based on the number 7 and all commentators believe that 77s is 70 periods of 7 years or in other words 490 years ooh that's a date That's a very scary thing to do, to to give dates. Well, God gives a date here to Daniel. 77s, 490 years are what? Are decreed for your people. Who are your people? Not us. This is the Jewish people and your holy city. That's not Riverton. That's Jerusalem. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. Woo, it's getting specific. To do what? Now listen, there're six of them. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Woo. Over the next 490 years, God says, "I'm going to accomplish six things. Here they are. Now, by the way, the first three of them are negative. The final three are positive. The first three have to do with God addressing a problem. The last three have to do with God fulfilling something that he promised. The first three have to do with God dealing with sin. The last three have to do with God establishing righteousness The first three have to do with God atoning for and eradicating evil, and the last three have to do with God bringing into some kind of kingdom of righteousness. Here are the six to finish transgression. The word actually means rebellion. Israel had had a long history of rebellion against God's law, and that's part of the reason for the exile that they're in right now. But that history of rebellion isn't going to stop after the exile. It continues. But God says, I'm going to deal with your the rebellion of his people. He's going to deal with its penalty, and he's going to deal with the persistence of this propensity toward evil, toward rebellion. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, obviously, is: has rebellion or evil been dealt with among the Jewish people? No, not even close. Has, what did Jesus do with regard to human rebellion? Well, Jesus, when he came on earth 2,000 years ago, he paid the penalty when he died on the cross for our sin. So Jesus did something to deal with human rebellion, but it's not been eradicated yet. Let's go to number two, to put an end to sin. Now, this one doesn't talk about what will be accomplished in terms of, of sin, but what is the means by which God will do it? God will make a way. He will come up with a means by which human sin can be paid for. Well, that sounds pretty much like what Jesus did when he died on the cross some years ago. But then number three, it says, to atone for wickedness. Well, we know that's what Jesus did. God atoned for the wickedness of his people like he did symbolically in the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur for the Jewish people every year. God paid that penalty once for all with a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice when Jesus gave his life for our sin on the cross and then was raised from the dead. So there's a sense in which these first three, God dealing with sin, was partially dealt with by what Jesus did when he was here. But it's not been completely done. Of course, we don't have at this point the end of sin. Human rebellion hasn't been extinguished, nor has Jewish rebellion. So that's partly fulfilled, but partly not fulfilled. But now we come to number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Oh, well, we've got that right now, don't we? Where is that? You can't find anywhere where there's everlasting righteousness. None of that has happened at all in this planet. There's not a corner anywhere on this globe where we have inter, where we have everlasting righteousness right now. But God says, "I am going to fulfill my promise to bring everlasting righteousness. We're going to be we're going to take our swords and turn them into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and the lion will lay down with the lamb and people will learn war no more." Where's that? It certainly isn't here yet. But God says, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. And it gets better. I'm going to seal up vision and prophecy. I'm going to bring to fulfillment all of the prophecies of Scripture. Has that happened yet? Not even close. And I'm going to anoint the most holy place. Well, that sounds like the holy place sounds like a a temple, a Jewish temple, maybe a millennial temple. So those three certainly have not been accomplished yet. But God says, I have decreed, Daniel, I'm telling you, 490 years. And by, that, by the end of that time, this is what I will have done. I will have um, finished rebellion. I will have put an end to sin. I will have atoned for wickedness. I will bring in everlasting righteousness. I will bring to fulfillment the prophecies of Scripture. And I will inaugurate a temple of some kind, a holy place that will be anointed. Well, what do you do with this? I guess some of these, numbers 1, 2, and 3, can be interpreted to refer to the work done by Jesus on the cross, but not completely. And numbers 4, 5, and 6 cannot in any normal sense be interpreted as being completed to date. They still must be future. So this prophecy of the 490 years obviously has a historical part to it, but it obviously has to have a future part to it as well, because none of this has happened or even close where we live right now. You see, God says, Daniel, I will, God says, at some time yet future, make everything right. God, say, God is in the unstoppable business of renewing the world in righteousness, and this renewal has definite time markers to it. Here's what God said in the book of Revelation, verse chapter 21. Someday God says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. God's dwelling place is now among people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the ultimate game plan. That's where it's headed. And it began when Jesus died on the cross. The eradication of sin was dealt with a death blow. Sin was dealt a death blow when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. But now, Daniel is going to be given in just three verses the blueprint, and this is where it gets tricky. What is about to be given is unprecedented in human history. There's nothing like it, nothing ever. Incredibly specific with actual numbers and clear events, people, and places in three verses. Now, I'm going to give you a shot at it. It's going to be my best effort. But again, as I said before, um, I'm not no Bible scholar and I can't begin to tell you that I know exactly what this passage is talking about, but it seems like it's pretty clear. There are many interpretations of it, many. Why? Because it's so imp- important. Some interpretations say, you no, know, all of this passage has already been completed under the reign of, remember last week, a couple of weeks ago, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes the one who so brutalized the Jewish people around the year 170 B.C. They said this was fulfilled then, but after that everlasting righteousness came in, sin was dealt with, and not a one of those things was done. So that's baloney, it seems to me, obvious baloney. A second view, very common view, and could be true, is that this is all to be taken figuratively, not specifically, literally, with all these numbers. And that's possible, but God seems to be giving very specific things here, and it seems like we ought to be taking it seriously. And if we do take it seriously, guess what happens? He' going to predict the date of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let's go at it. Here it goes. I'll read the passage, and then we'll come back and take it apart piece by piece. And by the way, in your bulletin, the, on the back, you see some of the pieces that we're going to try to define for you there. Know and understand this. So apparently God thinks Daniel can figure this out, or at least we can who read it. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, as you see here, this passage of scripture, it begins with three numbers. Seven sevens, 62 sevens, and one seven. Seven sevens is 49. And then, of course, 62 sevens. And then the last seven is just seven years. Let's start with 77s. It says that 77s are the time frame that God is dealing with. 77s is 490 years, but be careful there because if you have your calculator, you can get out your calculator. That'd be fine right now. Or your pencil, if you don't use a calculator, get out your cell phones, try it out. If you use, remember, 490 years are not our years, because, remember, this is one of the most important principles of reading the Bible. When you read the Bible, you never say, what are you saying to me, God? That is not appropriate. What you should say is, God, what did you say to the people to whom you wrote this Bible? And in light of that, what are you saying to me? Because God did not write this book to us. He wrote this to his Jewish people, in Babylon at the time of Daniel many years ago. That's the people to whom he originally wrote it. Now, when they thought of a year, they were under a lunar calendar. Our calendar, the Julian calendar, didn't begin till Julius Caesar around the year 40 A.D. And it didn't become a Gregorian calendar until thousands of years, a thousand years later. So, when God said 490 years to those people to whom it was written, their calendar year was 360 days a year, not 365 and a quarter, which is our year. So, remember, if you're going to be a mathematician, you're going to be true to the Holy Scriptures. You've got to use what, it, what God said when he said it to these people. So, God said, 490 lunar years are decreed. For various things to take place. So now we've got our number. Now remember, if you're going to convert that, you have to remember that each of our years has five and a quarter more days per year. So that's going to change things a little bit. But then it says the prophetic calendar, Daniel, is going to begin from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now that's very specific. When a decree or a permission or some kind of word was given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, woo! If that's the starting point, it says it's very, very important that we would try to figure out what is that. And there are many suggestions, but it seems like the most obvious suggestion is that that is the decree that the Bible tells us about when King Artaxerxes gave. Nehemiah the permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And by the way, do you know how long that rebuilding took place? How long it took? 49 years. So that decree of King Artaxerxes, we know exactly when that was given. 444 or 445 BC. That's when he gave that decree. How do we know? Look at the Bible and look at Persian history. They both tell us when it was. We know exactly when that decree was given to Nehemiah, so you can begin the prophetic time clock around 445 B.C. But then it says that there will be seven sevens and 67 sevens until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Well, the seven sevens sevens is is a 49-year period of time, and interestingly, from around 445 B.C., or 444, to 396 B.C. is how long it took for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, the rebuilding that began under the time of Nehemiah, and the order for that was given by King Artaxerxes. Seems like a very reasonable starting point. But then, 62 more sevens, up to 483 years. At that point, it says that the, the, the anointed one will come and of course, after the, six, after the seven sevens, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. That's the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. Well, you can do the math. I've done it many, many times. And this is what you would find. Based on a prophetic calendar of 360 days per year, then the 483 years specified by Daniel, would turn out to be 173,880 days, and eight, seven, 173,880 days divided by our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, by 365.24 results in just over 476 solar years, which brings from the date the decree was issued to the date when the Messiah will be cut off, Nisan, or the spring of A.D. 33. No one, no one would, (gasps) why? Because that is the traditional date of the crucifixion of Jesus. March, April 33 A.D. I didn't make it up. (laughs) Daniel wrote this hundreds of years before it actually took place. So the starting point of the prophecy is Nisan, the month of Nisan for the Jewish people, 444 B.C., and the finishing point is the spring of A.D. 33, the date of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, if you were Daniel or the people of Israel, and you saw this, one, you'd be stunned with the date. If you were in Daniel's date, you'd go, whoa, that's a long time. i be long dead when that happens. But the part that would stun you is the Messiah, the anointed one, who sounds like someone very good, will be put to death. That's pretty bad. And actually, the words shall be cut off, or actually the words, the the one shall shall cut a covenant. He will be like a sacrificial death. The Messiah will be like a sacrificed lamb at the Passover time in 33 AD. Whoa, that's strange. But then the next line, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Well, who is this ruler who will come? This does not sound like the one who is the anointed one who just got cut off or put to death. It sounds like another ruler. Well, who was the ruler? Well, it was Titus who came in some years later and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, some 30-some years after the time of Jesus. And the city and the sanctuary were destroyed. It came in like a flood, a, a meltal year war in which masses of Jewish people were killed. And uh, that's what, what happened. Well, then, go back to the prophecy. It ends with these words. He, verse 27, he will conf... Who's the he? It just talked about a, a ruler who will come, who's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then it talks about he. Well, English tells us that you go to the nearest antecedent, so probably he refers to the, a ruler that will come, but he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination. Wait, wait a minute. The temple's gone, but here it's talking about the temple. The sanctuary's gone. He destroyed the sanctuary, but now he's setting up an abomination in the temple. Who is this he? Can't be the same person. Or when does this take place? We have clear historical evidence of the Messiah being cut off. We have clear historical evidence of Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple being raised. But a covenant with the many in the middle of the... We don't have any. There's no evidence of anything historically like that at all. None. So what's it talking about? Many scholars believe that between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel, there's a parenthesis, and we're in it right now. Paul would call it the time of the Gentiles, because there's a gap between the 69th week for the history of the Jewish people, when God's going to accomplish these six things, and the 70th week, which is still to come. It will begin with a ruler who is going to come, perhaps out of this Roman Empire. He's going to confirm a covenant with many for one seven. It seems like, if you take this from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and John in the book of Revelation, this is the beginning of the tribulation. The beginning of the tribulation begins with a peace covenant the Antichrist forming a covenant with Israel. And then in the middle of it, that's three and a half years later. Some abominable thing, like Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember when he defiled the temple by establishing a, uh, an idol to Zeus and sacrificing pigs on the altar? An incredible abomination. This one will can do a, an abomination even worse. But he's going to be gone. Something's going to be poured out on him. Seems like this is what Jesus and John talk about, what's going to happen at the end. And so, God's timetable has these specific markers. The issuing of a decree the to rebuild Jerusalem. The, 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 uh, the, uh, the anointed one being cut off. And then the city of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. And then a covenant and an abomination and a destruction. All of these things seem to be in God's timetable. So, so what? It's good math, really good math. So what? I hope my explanation was clearer than mud. (laughs) But let's try to figure out what this means for us. Because, by the way, this is a very, very important passage of the Bible. The first application of this passage is not to us. It's to God's people, the Jewish people. And what was God trying to communicate to his people through this? Well, one thing he's obviously trying to do is, trying to tell them that the the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come at a time when even wise men from Persia are going to make their way to Israel because they hear that there's a king that's been born. At the time when Jesus was born, there was great messianic uh, anticipation in Israel during those days. The prophet Micah had said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The the shepherds were told by angels that the Messiah had been born. Simeon and Anna, two godly, godly Jewish people, confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, and Daniel told them when this Messiah would arrive or be killed, but they didn't see it. Remember what Jesus said on the last week of his life as he was entering into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives? He looks over the city and he starts to cry. He says, You did not recognize. The time of God's coming to you didn't make him mad. It made him sad. He cried. You didn't see it. Why not? Why didn't they see it? Well, we wouldn't see it either, probably. Some did. Many, many, many Jewish people. All of the original Christians were Jews. All of them for about 10 years of our history until Gentiles started to come in. All Jews. They saw it. Why did most people not see it? That I can tell you in one word, tradition, from Fiddler on the Roof. Because many of their traditions had superseded the clear teaching of God's word. They didn't see it, nor probably would we. But what was God trying to do? He was trying to encourage his people that God does hear their prayers. He was trying to remind God's people that in spite of their many sufferings, God does have a game plan, and it is good. God wanted to stimulate their faith as they observed historical events prophesied by Daniel unfolding in their presence. He wanted, God wanted through this to emphasize to God's people that though he does discipline sin, he is incessantly working for good. He wanted to inform God's people that difficult days do lie ahead for them But he wanted to surprise them with the horrendous notion that the anointed one, the Messiah, would be of all things cut off, crucified. Perhaps they would see Jesus as the Messiah, and many did. He wanted to warn them, perhaps, that they were one day going to be deceived by a very powerful ruler offering a covenant on one hand and an abomination on the other. He wanted to prepare them in advance. He wanted to help them to anticipate the ultimate victory of the Messiah, and he wanted to motivate them to look up, for their redemption draweth nigh. That's what he's trying to do for his people. And what's he trying to do for us? Well, the first thing I need to to say in terms of what God is trying to teach us is that what I have said here today, and I've tried to interpret this passage, many people do not agree with me. And by people, I mean very, very good godly Christians. We're much better than I am. So when we come to events about the future, we need to be people of humility because we don't know. But by all accounts, Bible prophecy is stunning. God's math is mind-boggling. God knows the future, and he has a perfect sense of timing. There is no comparable prophecy anywhere in Scripture dating when the 70th week begins. So don't set dates. Don't believe any date setters and don't be corrupted by those who do. It's a warning. God did give to Daniel a clear time frame for when the Messiah would be cut off. But there's no similar time frame for us as to when the 70th week will begin. Maybe if someday we're alive and we see a covenant made with Israel and an abomination midway in the middle of that that seven year period, then you might know what's coming. And it isn't going to be good, but the end is perfect. So don't set states. What does it mean to us? Keep your eyes on Israel. Keep your eyes on Israel. Because the centerpiece of God's future is not America. Don't worry, it's not Russia. It's not Iran, Persia. It's not China. It's this little tiny strip of land called the Holy Land, the land of the Messiah. Keep your eyes on Israel. And remember, God wins. Or better yet, he already won. You see, this whole thing was already over 2,000 years ago when Jesus defeated sin and defeated death and opened up the grave for eternal life with God. already won. These are the mop-up operations that we're in right now. But you might say, why so long? It's been 2,000 years. Well, God answers that too. Apostle Peter did. These are his words in 2 Peter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So we're only in day two, by the way, right now. Here's verse nine. This is the key. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is this period between the 69th and the 70th year so prolonged now, almost 2,000 years? Why? It's because God's in the business of filling heaven. Who does he want? Everyone. He doesn't want, he's not willing that anyone should perish. He wants everyone, if possible. That should be our heart too. And our mission. Why are we here? We're here to be part of, we're we're his ambassadors. We're his, his mouthpieces. We're the ones who represent and resemble Jesus. That's who we are. Because God wants people in heaven. That's why he's waited so long. Donald Campbell, who was the president of Dallas Seminary some years ago, tells the following story. Two Christians who were observing a model of first century Jerusalem at the Holy Land Hotel, we're discussing in particular the future rebuilding of the temple. A stranger stood nearby listening to their conversation and then introduced himself as a New York rabbi. He asked in amazement, Do Christians really believe in the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem? Haven't you read your prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel? One of the Christians replied, No, the rabbi admitted. Because when I was studying to be a rabbi, I was told not to read Daniel and was particularly forbidden to compute the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. What was the reason for the prohibition? Because the prophetic books, especially Daniel 9, show the Messiah has already come and he's coming again. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet but a mystery to our minds sometimes it's clear but sometimes it's fuzzy that even the fuzzy is from your holy spirit and this is fuzzy but it's incredible that you would actually give a date is is just like you because no one else could ever pull that off and heavenly father i pray that we would be people who you've grafted into the stump of your people israel and then you would help us heavenly father to represent our the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, with a measure of integrity and grace and goodness. And above all, Heavenly Father, help us to be your ambassadors in this world in which you've given us the privilege of living. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.